A little girl vanishes into thin air. I looked under cars. I looked in bushes. The investigation still haunts the community. It's a nightmare. At first, you don't believe it's actually happening. I'm Bryn Caswell, reporter and weekend news anchor at Dayton 24-7 now. We've always felt, I feel and Misty feels, if we are close, that we will feel it. I've dug 100 holes at Huffman Dam in the last five years. I'm Nathan Edwards, morning news anchor, and this is Missing Erica Baker, a podcast from Dayton 24-7 now. I would say to Kristen, you can run. But you can't hide from yourself. In this final episode, how the Erica Baker case will never go cold. So we are in Dayton 24-7 Now's podcast recording studio. I'm with Nathan and our news director, Becky Golden. Hi, Becky. Hey, guys. I have something I want to share with you both. I went to the library and found a February 1999 issue of the Dayton Daily News. Yeah, it's interesting when you take a look at it. It's in black and white. It's clearly the 90s. You could tell by the haircuts and the pictures on the front page here. It says that Monday the weather was lovely. And we're looking at some big headlines from 1999. There was a lot going on in the world that day. King Hussein of Jordan died and Monica Lewinsky was testifying before the Senate. And at the top, it actually talks about how the impeachment trial actually impacted the TV show Friends. It's got a picture of all of them right there at the top. Yeah, but what really caught my eye was this little story right here. It's at the bottom of the front page, and it just says, Cruise search for missing girl nine. Now, this was the day after Erica went missing. It's interesting because her name isn't even in the headline, and this must have been the first time the newspaper covered her disappearance. Yeah, this edition came out the day after Erica went missing. It was just a small write-up on the front page, but the next day, it was the top story. This case is 23 years old. The world has changed a lot across those two decades, but one thing stays the same. The search for Erica Baker's body continues. Finding her remains could lead to new arrests, new clues revealing how she died, and finally, a proper burial. So in this final episode of the season, I'm sure you're hoping that an anonymous source emerged from the shadows someone who could offer to lead us to her final resting place. Well, we'll all have to keep hoping. The reality is this. So many people are looking for closure. Erica's family, her friends, her community. Those who aren't familiar with this investigation might accidentally call it a cold case. But one thing that was made absolutely clear to us throughout our reporting. This case will never, ever go cold. As long as I stand here and breathing, I will dedicate everything that I have to the cause. That's my goal. That's my only goal at this point, is to find her and bring her home for the family. I say this with full conviction. One thing I told to myself, it will never go cold, because I won't let it go cold. So we talk with the current investigators committed to this case, and we talk with her family and friends about how they have come to terms 23 years later. Let's start with the boots on the ground. The team currently searching what seems like every square mile of southeastern Ohio. 
So we're standing here in Eastwood Metro Park in Riverside. Um, this was the most recent area that you have searched for Erica Baker. What drew you to this location? It's by process of elimination. I'm with Dave Rader, the director of EquiSearch Midwest. You draw out a circumference of, of where's the possible places that you could hide something, hide a body. And this was, was within that circumference. And you're looking for something so small. And especially when somebody says that they buried them, now all of a sudden it gets a lot more um, difficult at best. This nationwide organization is dedicated to reuniting families with missing loved ones. The founder, Tim Miller, started this nonprofit after his own 16-year-old daughter went missing. To date, EquiSearch has returned more than 400 missing people home safe. They have recovered more than 240 bodies to families, offering some form of closure. EquiSearch Midwest covers Ohio and other Midwestern states. Dave Rader organizes teams of 10 to 20 people to go on searches for Erica. They've been all over Ohio, Caesar Creek, Springfield, New Burlington. They put in the miles. Back in Eastwood Metro Park in Riverside, Dave showed me what they looked for on the ground at a search location. And now as the body decomposes, it will let that dirt settle. So after 20 plus years, we're looking for any kind of a depression. And then at that point in time, we can kind of make the determination, is it big enough? Is it too big, too small? And then we would probe it. The FBI brought in cadaver dogs in certain areas. We're even looking at the process of even using drones with the technology that is just now being introduced. It's brand spanking new that can actually tell us if a piece of ground has been disturbed or not. Have you found someone that's been decomposing for 20 plus years or? <clears throat> you know, the cold cases we're starting to get more and more of, but nothing after 20, 20 plus years, no. After more than 20 years, the land has physically changed. Leaves dropping in the fall, new growth sprouting up in the spring, people going on hikes or camping. This all could be shifting where Erica is buried, if she's buried in Ohio like Christian Gabriel, who confessed to striking her with his van, said she was. It's a challenging task, but could new technology breathe new life into an old investigation. DNA testing and genetic analysis has helped solve numerous cold murder cases. For Erica Baker, high-tech cameras attached to drones may uncover new clues. There were some archeologically significant finds made in Mongolia using the same camera that were 30 years old and even went back to the Ottoman Empire. We can find disturbed earth stuff that you would walk past and never even think twice of, we can pick that up, no problem. Gene Robinson, owner of RP Search Services. In 2005, he says he took his drone-operated camera to look for a man who was missing for six months. And sure enough, we found the guy. The closure that we brought to that family had a profound impact on me, and I said, this is something that I'm going to do. Since then... His services have been requested to help solve crimes all around the country. He works with EquiSearch quite extensively. We can see changes in vegetation around where a person might be buried. And it's just incredible. So this is a, a true case. We were looking for a stolen vehicle. 
it was hidden in a forest. Well, you know, you can't see too well in the forest when you're looking straight down with the drone. So if we go out and we do one square mile of forest, we may have two or 3,000 pictures. However, one pixel of red showed up as we scanned it with this software, and it just so happened to be that car. For Dave Rader, who drives the search effort, this is optimistic. Would Gene come up here? Absolutely, in a minute. I would fly him up here. But the airspace is restricted in this part of southeastern Ohio. The dam is right next to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Unleashing this new technology would face regulations and costs. It's not impossible, but we would have to really get everybody on board uh, to use this technology. And if it's something that we can bring to the table, absolutely, I'm going to bring it. You know, I've always sat there and said that if I need a kitchen sink to throw in, I'll go to Lowe's and buy one. As we are recording this, there are no plans to search Ohio with this drone-operated camera, according to EquiSearch and the Kettering Police Department. Detective, where are we at right now? Uh, City of Kettering Police Department. To understand the full picture of where the investigation is today, we talk with the current lead detective assigned to the case, Vincent Mason. How long have you been assigned on the Erica Baker case? Since 2011 or 12. When Detective Bob Green, who you heard a lot throughout this series, was promoted to sergeant, the police department passed on the torch. Detective Mason started by going through the case file, all 250 pages of it. Three ream boxes of papers worth of printout. Every tip ever called into uh, America's Most Wanted, the entire case file, the narrative, everything filled three ream box paper, both sides all the way up. So it was a, when I got it delivered to me, I was a little shocked. But the narrative itself is 250 pages. So I went through it. It was a very thorough investigation. I liked the fact that nobody basically just grabbed one guy and said, this has got to be the guy. They went through several possible suspects before they got to the result they had. Um, I just read through the case with a blind eye, assuming everybody was guilty until I read through the case file. Took it home and I spread it out basically in my room at home and hung up the pages on the walls that I thought was important and took notes and would put sticky notes all over the notes hanging everywhere and just so I could get a, I like to lay it out so I can see it all. He says it took him six months to go read through every single piece of paper, make notes and compare the evidence. That's why I wanted to get a whole copy of everything so that if, if I were to get something that I could lead to possibly charging somebody with, I can say, I've looked at everything. I've looked at every single piece of paper. I know this is where it leads. And that's part of the responsibility, but I would do that with any cold case. So would you say when you took over, what did you feel like your goal was? Your position was to find her body? That's my goal. That's my only goal at this point, is to find her and bring her home for the family and for Sergeant Green or Bob Green. Sergeant Bob Green who was the initial lead detective assigned to this case, told us that Erica's body, her clothes, even her raincoat probably has deteriorated quite a bit at this point. He said even at this point, if you find bones, there's not going to be a lot of 
f physical evidence so because of deterioration over the years. Do you think there would, you know, I guess, would there be enough to bring up new charges if you guys my found the only, body? My only theory is we could possibly charge if we found the body and one there's a projectile like a bullet in it. That would change the story immensely. If we found the body after this many years, I don't know if even the rope being around the neck would still be there. And due to deterioration, it probably wouldn't be enough anyway. And even if it was, there's no way to tell who shot her, whether it was him Correct. or whether it was uh, Jan, Jan Franks, the woman or who... Or somebody else. Or someone there's else. There's no way so. to... Yeah, how would I prove who did that? I've dug a hundred holes at Huffman Dam in the last five years. So I still consider it a high priority. We had a gentleman who was sick and possibly dying that begged me to go with him to Huffman Dam. He begged for you to He go. begged for me to go to Huffman Dam. I went out there and in his sickened state, we parked at the top and I said, where are we going? He walked me a mile and a half back in there and said, I came here I was running these stairs, which there's an old set of rotted stairs there. They used to go to the top and back down. Um, and I saw that van park right here next to this tree, and I saw him go in the woods with something. And I went out there and I dug anywhere that looked like it might have been an impression, but that's the place that every spring floods. So when it washes out, it washes out the topsoil, brings in new topsoil. When I was taken there, I met with the Metro Parks officers, and they were able to find me a map from around the right time. Mm -hmm. And you used to be able to drive all the way back to the area where he took me, and there was a parking lot right there that backed up to this big tree, and the tree's still there. Did that person say why he didn't come forward 23 years ago? Or he was... had some charges in his past. He was worried he'd be accused of the one that killed her and buried her there. Huffman Dam is one of the first locations Christian Gabriel talked about with police. He even led investigators on a tour of the dam. He pointed out where they parked the car, but never revealed any meaningful details about Erica's location. If she was buried near Huffman Dam, it's possible that Christian wouldn't even know where she is at this point, since that area is so prone to flooding. What do you think motivates a lot of these people to call in these tips? I get a lot of calls from people who just feel guilty. They're like, if I don't call, I, and this could be the tip, I got to tell it to you. I get a lot of calls like that, and I understand that. That's fine. If it helps them, at least I tried. That's fine with me. Is it exhausting? Uh, some days it is, because I get calls from psychics, um, which I still follow up on them if I can. A lot of those are more... Well, she was buried in a, in a sewer drain and has washed away since then. Thanks for calling. I don't know what you want me to do with that. And of course, the one man who admitted to being involved in Erica's disappearance is nowhere to be found. Detective Mason believes Christian has moved out west, possibly Oregon. I wrote uh, Christian Gabriel a letter and mailed it to every address I could find for him. I haven't received a response, and I probably don't expect one, but... I'll keep reaching out to him and hopefully someday all I'm looking for is a hand-drawn map or, hey, why don't you check the yard in this address? Anything just so that I can say I checked. What did you say when you wrote him a letter? Uh, 
I'm Detective Mason. I know you remember or Bob Green. I'm not the same person he is. I'm not looking to charge anybody at this point with a crime unless something comes up. I just want to bring a little girl home to her grandma and parents. That's it. Have you ever talked to Christian Gabriel? I believe I talked to him. I called a phone number that I was told was his two or three years ago mm -hmm. on the anniversary. And I spoke to a gentleman and I said, listen, don't hang up on me. Just listen. I need you to get a message to Christian Gabriel. And I had a long conversation, well, a one-sided conversation. And I said, can you deliver that message? And I got, yeah, I'll deliver that message. And he hung up. And you think that was actually Christian, the person you talked to? I don't know why he would have stayed on the phone if it wasn't. Erica's mother and father also have words for Christian Gabriel. I would say to Christian, you can run, but you can't hide from yourself. I don't wish any scenario except for her to walk back through that door. That's what I hope. Even if he could just send a note in, this is what happened, this is what did, you know, this this is where she had. I mean, they could even do it anonymously. Have somebody else write it that he trusts and let us know what happened to her. If he ever sees this or he's open to meeting with me, I'm 100% down. Katie Wolford, Erica's childhood best friend. I'm coming from a place in pure in heart and I would love to have just a conversation with you. When we return, Erica's loved ones reflect and her childhood best friend shares why she wants to sit down with Christian Gabriel. list you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's list is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Kitty Wolford grew up running around the neighborhood, playing made-up games, swimming in the pool, her best friend Erica Baker by her side. They embraced the freedom of a childhood in the late 90s until Erica disappeared. Then that joy disappeared for many in the Kettering community. Over the last 23 years, you talk about before this all happened, you were a bubbly kid. Yeah. And how did it change you? Um, I think I was kind of trained to like fear people, but I do think it changed me early on to like be afraid of everyone, you know, or like don't trust anyone. It was torture. You want to live your life and you don't want to live your life in fear at all. And I would like to just know I'm a social butterfly again, but it, there was definitely a time where that fire was definitely put out for me. Katie says it's taken her decades of healing to come to a place of understanding with this traumatic event. But I personally have wanted to talk to Christian Gabriel. I'll just say this, like I understand forgiveness and I understand redemption and I understand restoration and I understand like true repentance. 
And I think if somebody were to maybe talk to him from a perspective, like, listen, dude, like, what the hell? What truly do you know that you have not said? That's the biggest thing that's so frustrating, too, is we don't know. And like none of us sitting here know, nobody in her family knows, nobody associated truly knows what happened. And so if we were to say, oh, I think this, or me as Katie, I think this, it's all assumptions. And I think that's what makes it so frustrating. You're a person of faith. Yeah. <laughs> and you've talked about that since we walked in your door. I'm not afraid. <laughs> Have you been able to forgive Christian Gabriel and the people who are involved with this? So this is difficult because I'll just be very real with you. Um, the short answer is yes. The long answer is it took a really long time to do that. And it took a very, very long time to even get to a point of like, because it was more for my healing, I think, um, to forgive. And the worst part is it's like we're forgiving what we don't know to get that off my own heart and my own life, to be like held back for so long with the situation and just trauma of it all. It's like, you have to forgive, you know? I think it's probably also hard to maybe forgive someone who hasn't actually said exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I'm just being very raw and honest with you, but it's like, I had, I mean, it took me years to even come to that place of forgiveness. We're talking over two decades. Were you ever angry? Yeah. Um, for many reasons, not just like my best friend's gone, but the fact that that's even a thing, like that's hard to process, even as an adult with children, like that's hard to process, I think for anyone. And I think that anger you feel towards said individuals and people and folks involved, it's like, how do you manage having such dark feelings, you know, towards someone or how do you manage rightfully so, being angry about something and wanting to take it into your own hands or wanting to try to do something when you're so hopeless and you can't do anything about it. So definitely anger for sure for how it affected me, but also that that's even something that can happen to a precious person. Did your parents, did their parenting style change after mm -hmm. Erica went missing? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I've talked to my parents about this and they knew I was doing this, so it's all good and it's been forgiven. But I remember talking to my mom yesterday and she was like, I'm sorry, like, I just like stunted that. Because I was a social butterfly. What do you do in a situation like that? But it's, she felt bad because it was like, no, you can't go anywhere. Like from the age of nine up, my entire childhood, it's like, no, you can't go do that and know you're gonna be with me the whole time and just not getting to experience like normal stuff like that. But, and it's, it got to a point too where people would stop asking me to do stuff. And that's when I was like, man, you know, but looking back, I get it. And I'm in my thirties now, like I get it, but it did suck and I do definitely forgive that. And I probably maybe would have done the same thing if I was a parent back then. It was almost like you guys were sisters. Yes. And I'm sorry. I'm. Ugh. She was literally my best friend growing up. And it was like sisters, and that's why this is hard to talk about, because it's like my parents losing a child as well, and then me losing definitely more than just like friends. We were all family, for sure. You have a 15-year-old yourself. Did this change how you parented? Um, that'd probably be a question for my husband. Uh, <laughs> but 
I would say, I think I'm definitely more aware, like, and I'm not that person to be like, hey, don't do X, Y, and Z. But I am very much like, hey, kids, like, this is what we do if this happens, or hey, come to me if X, Y, and Z. But I definitely think I have a different perspective for sure in today's age. Um, when you were growing up, when did you eventually settle into that new normal that Erica? was more than likely not coming home. Every year that goes by, the anniversary date or her birthday is in June, like every type of date that comes up, it makes it so much more difficult. Just thinking like, oh, she would we would have had our license by now or we would have been graduating by now. And I remember when I got married, like Pam, her grandma and Greg were at my wedding and I didn't realize how hard that was for them. And I didn't realize like why for the longest time. For mother, Misty Baker, and grandmother, Pam Schmidt, it was difficult to watch Erica's friends grow up while Erica was nowhere to be found. I watched her friends grow up and get married, have children. That's the hardest thing to do. But I wouldn't change anything. You know, the thing is, um, especially Katie, who was was really close to Erica. She has she has been with us this whole time, and she's grown up. And um, I I value her and honor her. If Erica were still around today, what kind of person do you think she would be? I think she'd work in the healthcare system. She loved helping people. I think she's a teacher. I think she's a leader. Um, I think that she's taught so many people so many things without even trying. And um, I just believe if she were still here, she would be the one who held the family together when it was falling apart. She would be the one that would draw the boys together with mom, you know? Um, I think she would do that. Her father, Greg Baker, believes his daughter's future held boundless potential. Who do you think Erica would be today? Oh, Lord. That's a loaded question. That's a loaded question. Mm -hmm. She was a very outgoing young girl. Very, very, very vocal. So there is no telling. No telling. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was very sports-minded. So you have two other children, two boys. Yes. You know, when they lost their little sister and they had to go through all of this, what was it like seeing, um, being a father and watching your, your children go through this as well? You know, it, it affected all of them. And up to their adulthood years, it still affects them mm -hmm. and everything that they do. And so you have eight great grandchildren, yes. you said. Um, how do you think this has impacted their parenting? I tell you what, they, I know the, the mothers are, are pretty close net with those kids. And when anything goes down, they contact me right away. They're always asking me for help for certain things and, and things that go on in the kids' lives. And you know, and, and I told them, I said, you know, what happened to Erica was one in a million. It, it, I mean, it, could it happen again? Of course it could happen again. But unfortunately, it was just one of those incidents where she was in the wrong place at the right time. Erica's mother, Misty, and grandmother Pam continue to hold on to hope. Now, 23 years have passed. Uh, none of us are getting any younger. Do you, do you believe that 
by the time you die that you will get answers. I am hopeful. I am hopeful that every time Vince Mason gets a tip, it's the one that leads us to Erica. I'm very hopeful, but one thing for sure, I know that she'll be waiting for me when I cross over. And I'm so much older than everybody else that it will be joyous, and I think she will meet me. But when you get those, when you hear about the tips or you hear about the equi-search efforts or digging up the basement of an old home to try to find her body, obviously there's probably like a small feeling of hopefulness, but after all these years and so many searches, is it hard to keep that hope alive? No, no, quite the opposite. If I, the least little tip, my hopes are right up here, right up here and always will be. We've driven to places that they've been just because we've always felt, I feel and Misty feels, if we are close, that we will feel it, that we will feel her. And to this point, we haven't, honey. But we have, we always believe that if there is something, that one of us will feel it, and I still believe that. Now, a lot of places in this area have been searched. Are there any key places that you think she might be? Hoffman Dam was a very popular search site. Um, I think all of Ohio has been searched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there, there, I don't have any, any thought um, where she might be, and if I did, um, way back when this first happened, people would call up and say, there's an empty house at such and such. And uh, I'd go to that house, break in the house. I didn't care. What were they going to charge me with? Breaking in an empty house? You know, like abandoned homes and things like that. My husband did the same thing. He went to some places that people talked about. Um, my sister and I, we went to different places. Um, if something came in our mind, we were like the, uh, my mother used to call us the midnight writers of Paul Revere. We would go. Um, we just went anywhere we thought could be a possibility. You guys live in a different place now, a different city, other than Kettering. Is it hard to return to that community? Do you guys ever go back to Kettering, ever go back to the neighborhood where she disappeared? No, I don't. But the hardest thing for me was moving out of that house because that's where we lived and that's the home that she knew. Because I thought, what would happen if she found her way back and we're not here? And then I remember that everybody knows her story and that she would be guided to us. I'm just certain of it. 23 years, I mean, like, has that felt like a long time? Math is like yesterday. Death. Some, sometimes when I wake up, I'm half asleep and I think I got to get up and get the kids up and for school. It messes with me bad. You think about it every day. Yeah. What do you guys do 23 years later to keep her memory alive? We don't have to do anything. Uh -uh. She's, she's part of us and always will be. I got to have a closeness with Erica that most grandparents don't get to have because she lived with me. Um, I bought her clothes. I fixed her hair. I waved at her on the way 
to school in the morning, she would turn around and blow me kisses. Um, I, I don't know if I said I was a room mother. Um, I would get to go to school and, and take treats for the kids, and she got to be my helper. Um, I got to do a lot of things that most grandparents don't get to be, and I am eternally grateful for that. Um, the only thing that bothers me is sometimes I have trouble holding on to what her voice sounded like. Um, I, I don't, I don't have that anymore, and, and that that pains me. The police investigations have pointed towards her not being around anymore. But have you always kept that hope that she is alive? Like, there's always some speckle of possibility. A speckle, honey. I believe there's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot of hope in my heart. Doesn't matter what people say, they haven't proven it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, ma'am. So you're saying she's not the found, period. So That's right. And, you know, I hate that word closure. Mm. Closure to me would be Erica walking the door. There is no closure. There's next stage, but there's no closure. The next stage, defining what that looks like, is deeply personal for everyone grieving Erica Baker. There's no right way to navigate grief. Katie has come to her own peace with this. She holds on to hope. For the longest time, she says she would avoid Kettering, the city where Erica lived with her grandmother. She wouldn't go to the Kettering Rec Center, where witnesses last saw Erica alive. After going on her own process of healing, she can now call herself a proud Kettering resident. About four years ago, she says she was on a late night drive. She was thinking of Erica and realized something. I'm always remaining hopeful that more answers will come, but I felt it in my spirit and I felt it in my gut about four years ago, just randomly. But it wasn't until I was just on a night drive one night and I called my husband and I was like, I think she's gone. And I don't know why I thought that, but I just had this like, I don't know, kind of like intuition or like just a feeling of maybe like, Katie, you need to accept it. Once again, not that I wasn't hopeful, but it was just kind of like a, she is gone, but now what do we do kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's not like for, I mean, literally for almost two decades, I'm like, I'm hopeful she's alive, like, you know? Why do you think it took you two decades to get to that point? So part of me wants to just be honest and say denial. Um, but part of me too, um, I think, I just, so many times I would think of all the what ifs and all the different situations of what maybe could happen. Cause you hear these stories of like girls being in basements, you know, for 15 years. God, the things that have ran through my head from childhood to now, I'm just like, maybe she's still around somewhere. You know, maybe she's okay 
and it's just some crazy situation or a call or like whatever that looks like. But I think maybe I was telling myself that, but I just felt in my spirit like four or five years ago that it was just, I don't think she was going to be found. As time passes, Greg pushes forward. He created a gravesite for his daughter to honor her memory, but he is still waiting for the day he can finally lay his daughter to rest. So you have that gravesite for her. Yes. How often do you go there? Uh, I go there to put stuff out. I mean, I do go there, it's not on a regular basis, but I do go there from time to time. Mm-hmm. Do you leave special flowers or? Well, you use some stuff like for the holidays and this and that and the other, and then I'll go down and try to clean it off. And you really um, want to have remains to yes. lay at that specific plot. That's why the plot was put there. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is not a cold case. No. You know, and I'm very thankful to that, and I hope they keep going. I mean, until we can actually find out for sure what exactly happened. I mean, there's always these open questions. There's always these open answers. If you were to pass away, do you want them to keep this investigation open absolutely, for your kids? Absolutely, absolutely. Do your kids yes. understand that? They understand that also, okay. yes. Detective Vincent Mason understands this too. How the Erica Baker case is not just a case, but that she was a daughter a granddaughter, and a friend. Her story represents so much for her Ohio community. After this many years, 23 years, most of the time a case like this would be considered a cold case Mm -hmm. and run cold. Why has the Kettering Police Department decided to keep this case open after more than two decades? Because it's a little kid. Because I just want to bring her home. That's it. Do you think there will ever be a point that Kettering police will turn this into a cold case? No. It'll be on some detective's um, desk, technically, uh, until she's found. After all these years now, we can just, just want to get it put to rest. Yeah. You know, and, 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 Put the community at rest. I can't not help, but you know, the, the feelings that I have for the people here has been tremendous, mm-hmm. very tremendous. Hopefully we bring her home. I hope so. Listeners, I know you have a lot of questions right now. I know we do. So we're back in the Dayton 24-7 Now podcast studio with Bryn and Becky. Yeah, Nathan, I've been hooked on this story for decades, and our station has been putting together this podcast for months. We're hoping now to do a debrief with our final thoughts. We may not be able to tie up all the loose ends today, though. So follow us on our social media feeds. We're at Dayton 24-7 Now on Twitter and Facebook. We may be doing a Reddit Ask Me Anything, so keep an eye out for that. We also have been posting videos to YouTube. You can find our channel at Dayton 24-7 now. All right, let's dive right into this. First off, we need to talk about where Erica could be buried. Obviously, we've heard a lot of talk about Huffman Dam. Now, this is where Christian led investigators. We played the audio from that. And EquiSearch has searched this consistently. But Becky, you noticed something a little strange in Christian's confession letter, right? Yeah, Nathan, let me read it to you. Now, bear with me. Christian doesn't have the best grammar, so it's a little hard to get through, but here we go. He says, we then left 
And she, she being Jan Franks, gave me directions where to go. We got on a highway, I believe heading south for about five miles or so. We then got off on an exit and went left at a light, drove for a little longer, and then turned off onto a dirt road that went to the right. That doesn't make any sense because Huffman Dam's north, right? Correct. So I sort of jotted out these directions and started following them. And there's actually two parks south of Kettering where Erica went missing that might fit a little bit better as to where she could be. Now, have these parks been searched? So I did call Bob Green up and I asked him if they'd ever searched those in the past. He said one of the two parks they had searched. He actually recited this confession letter word for word. He knew exactly what I was talking about. And he said he had actually had the same thought I did. They have searched one of those two parks. Um, The other one he actually didn't know about. Now, I do a lot of hiking, so I've been out there several times. So I described it to them and they're going to be searching there now this fall based on that information. That's a huge deal. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and when you look at the park that they haven't searched yet, it looks a lot like Huffman Dam in the area they searched with Christian in the video. Yes, it does. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, Bryn, we know EquiSearch is ready to go, Mm -hmm. ready to search whenever detectives call them. Mm -hmm. I just spoke to Detective Bob Green, and he said he's already talking with Dave Rader, and Dave Rader's already mapping out this new location that Becky found. Um, to search in the fall. And the reason why they are waiting for the fall is because, you know, in the summer and the spring, it's too hard to get through. And so the fall, that will clear out and that will make searching a lot easier. Now we know Huffman Dam is near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That's restricted airspace. But this is a little bit farther away, not exactly close to the base. Mm-hmm. So if they don't have restricted airbase at this new park, is it possible they could use the drone? It is absolutely possible they could use the drone. And um, the drone technology that exists that Gene has been working on, you don't have to fly it very high, which is good. So he'd be able to fly in that area. But um, a lot of this comes down to financials and Kettering Police being able to afford to get Gene and the technology up here to Ohio to search. It's going to be expensive. Yeah. I mean... Christian Gabriel, he's known for lying, right, Becky? So how do we know this confession letter directions? He was even truthful here. Well, we don't. I mean, the the truth is he's given them several locations over the years, and we really don't know what's a red herring, what may be true, what may not be. And actually, Nathan, you noticed something about the, the recordings that he did. Yeah, this stood out to me in the Huffman Dam recording. He lets out these uncomfortable laughs, kind of like when he gets put under pressure. He goes, yeah, like I would do that. You know? <laughs> yeah, he, he lets out like this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very strange laugh. So I noticed it again when they were doing the polygraph interview with him. And there were times when he laughed. I think I counted 47 different times. And times that he is known to lie. And there were times where he would laugh where he's been suspected to be lying about information. Yeah, Nathan, I took your theory to Detective Bob Green, and he agreed with you. He thought that those laughing points could be an indication that Christian Gabriel was lying. Now, Bryn, Mm -hmm. what other loose ends have we not cleared up so far? So what we haven't cleared up is how Christian would have buried Erica Baker. So investigators say that he was a roofer, and we know that, and we know for a fact that he had a shovel in his van. But there has never been any DNA evidence ever found on the van. So Christian was the owner of the van at one point. However, after hitting Erica Baker, that van got sold to another owner. 
That owner then apparently cleaned out the van and ripped out the carpeting. And then that van sat in an impound lot for many years. And this impound lot was outside. So this van went through multiple seasons of rain, snow, heat. And investigators believe a lot of that DNA that could have been on the van is now gone and totally washed away. I mean, the van was a mess when we saw it. And it was rusty, broken down. The back doors didn't even open. No, it was a disaster. You know, something everyone always asks me is, well, was there a dent on the van? Well, yeah, there was, but there was a lot of dents on the van. This van was old in 1999, and it's a lot older (laughs) now. So this van is in not very good condition. So I don't think there's any way to show where a dent would have been from hitting someone or from a prior incident. And I know that's frustrating for a lot of people to accept. Mm -hmm. Now, Becky, are there any other loose ends that we need to tie up here? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is if you hit a little girl with your van... I understand being scared. I understand being worried about going to jail. Why not just leave? I know as bad as that sounds, why not just leave her there and get out of there? I don't understand the thought of picking her up and taking her with them. I know a lot of people have said that it was because they were on crack and they were using drugs. They weren't in the right headspace. But in the videotapes of Christian taking investigators Huffman Dam, an investigator says, You would think if you hit a little girl and she's dead or lying there needing help, that would sober you up incredibly fast. That would do that to about anyone. So why that didn't happen for Christian and Jan is very questionable. I think he knows exactly where she is. (sighs) I mean, as we've become invested in this case, it's been stressful for us, but we'll never, ever, ever know the stress Mm -hmm. that the people who knew her feel. And if Christian would have done the right thing or Jan who was also in the van, it really would have saved this family heartbreak. Man, I know a lot of people are wondering if we will ever get answers. I mean, it has been 23 years. Christian, if you're listening, here's your chance. That's all we got. We appreciate you guys. Thanks for sticking with us until the very end. We know you're as invested in this case as we are. And we hope that maybe, just maybe, someday we can bring Erica home. That's all for this season of Missing Erica Baker. Thank you to Erica Baker's family, friends, Kettering detectives, the Montgomery County Prosecutor's Office, and others who added their voice and expertise to sharing Erica's story. We care so much about this community, and we hope this podcast helps bring closure to the Erica Baker case. Thank you for listening. This is the end of the podcast season, but not the end of our reporting on this case. Head to Dayton247now.com. We created a special section dedicated to this. If there's any major updates to this investigation, we might be back in your podcast feeds. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you'll be notified when a fresh episode drops. While you're there, please leave us a review. Let us know what you think of this season. If you have thoughts on what Ohio crime next season should cover, email us at podcast at sbgtv.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on this season and what you'd like to hear next. Thanks to our production team from Sinclair Broadcast Group, Becky Golden, Michael Oyang, and Holden Robinson. And our production team at Pond People, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Jazzy Johnson, and Adam Raymunda. 
and to everyone who supported the production of this series. Richard Cook, Anna Nicole Weiss, Megan Westerberry, Joshua Richardson, Chase Bales, Rachel King, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Shirley Wang, Hannah Pedersen, and Stephanie Franco. Until next time, I'm Nathan Edwards. And I'm Bryn Caswell. This has been Missing Erica Baker. Missing Erica Baker.